Uh, speak, O oh Lord. Uh, may indeed we hear you speaking to us uh, as we reflect on this passage of Scripture and particularly on how it fits into your overall uh, plan and trajectory of revelation, pointing ultimately to Jesus and all you do for us in sending your Son. Amen. Uh, don't you think that one of life's greatest pleasures is to find a book that so grips you that you can't put it down? Uh, from the first page, it's really got you. Uh, you can't put it down. You turn each page and you can't turn them fast enough to find out how things unfold. Maybe you stay up into the early hours of the morning to finish it. I wonder what the last book was like that for you. Well, I'm prepared to wager my stipend for a week that it wasn't Leviticus. <laughs> Let's be honest. Uh, the book of Leviticus is not exactly up there in the page-turning thrillers category. Uh, when this first chapter was just read to us by Rod, I didn't get the sense that any of you were on the edge of your sheet seats suppressing that cry to say, read on to chapter 2. I didn't get that sense. And to the modern reader, uh, this book of ancient rituals and regulations seems pretty dull, uh, maybe irrelevant and heavy going. Uh, Leviticus is a graveyard in which lie the bodies of many whose attempts to read the Bible from cover to cover lie. Uh, those who set out on this cover to cover reading adventure invariably head off uh, in their Land Rover with great gusto in Genesis. Uh, they zip along through halfway to Exodus, and they start to find the road a bit bumpy then with uh, Exodus 21, with the laws and regulations about the tabernacle. And finally, uh, they grind to a standstill in the desert sands of Leviticus. Uh, they abandon the project with their vehicle up to its wheels in sand, the wheels spinning furiously in the detailed instructions about purification after childbirth and leprosy. Okay, uh, that's not the most flattering book review. So it begs the question, uh, why on earth we are embarking on a sermon series going through uh, this Old Testament book of Leviticus? I'm going to give you two reasons this morning. Uh, firstly, uh, for the simple reason that it is part of God's Word. And we know, of course, from 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, uh, it assures us of this. Uh, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So despite initial impressions, uh, reading Leviticus is actually going to do us good, uh, more good than picking up the latest edition of some James Grisham novel. John. Uh, secondly, uh, Leviticus introduces us to concepts and categories which the New Testament writers then use to help us understand the death of Christ and how we should then live as disciples of Jesus. The New Testament writers write against the background of the Old Testament. It's like the foundation on which they build. So you see, if we don't understand Leviticus, uh, there will be key teaching in the New Testament which will be in some way alien to us. It's not going to really make as much sense. So there we have it. Uh, two good reasons for getting to grips with this book of Leviticus. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to, we need to engage closely with it uh, before we then trace its trajectory through to the New Testament. Uh, today we're going to be looking at the first seven chapters of Leviticus. 
And we're going to see that they are all about the regulations given by God for offering sacrifices. Uh, You'll see from the outline in your bulletin that we're going to explore these chapters under three headings. Uh, Firstly, the sacrifices of Israel. Uh, Secondly, the sacrifice of Christ. And finally, the sacrifices of Christians. So, uh, let us go back in time uh, to the era of Israel and look at their sacrifices. Because, you see, before we can really understand what they mean to us today, uh, we have to enter the world of ancient Israel. And we need to understand the place that these sacrifices had in their lives and indeed what it involved. Uh, These first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus uh, give incredibly detailed instructions about the sacrifices that the Israelites were to bring to God. Uh, If you were to break them down, you could say chapters 1 to chapter 6, verse 7, is all about the instructions for the people in general. And then the remainder of our section, chapter 6, verse 8, to the end of chapter 7, are for the benefit of the priests particularly who would offer these sacrifices. To have the first seven chapters of this book uh, dedicated just to the the topic of these sacrifices shows how important they were. They were at the very heart of Israel's worship. Just to give you a a sort of context for understanding the book of Leviticus, uh, the prior book, Exodus, tells the story of how God rescues his people uh, from slavery in Egypt. He brings them out of slavery, and he brings them through the desert to Mount Sinai. And of course, there he gives them his law. Uh, There he makes a covenant, an agreement with them. And he gives them instructions uh, to make what is called a tabernacle. It's like a temple, which is mobile. Uh, In this tabernacle, or in Leviticus, it's referred to as the tent of meeting, uh, God himself would dwell amongst his people. Uh, God would dwell in the middle of the camp as his people journeyed through the desert, uh, ultimately to get to their destination, the promised land. And it was there in this tent of meeting that God would meet with his people. And the book of Exodus ends with the tabernacle uh, having been constructed and completed. And in Exodus 40, verse 34, we reach the climax of the Exodus narrative. Uh, It says this, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So there it is, uh, a great moment. But the question is this, how can it last? Uh, As Rod pointed out to us when we were singing that song, Holy, Holy, Holy. Uh, God is indeed, as I think you realize by now, holy. And his people, though rescued by his grace, are unholy. And the two, there's a tension. They can't coexist together. How could a holy God continue to dwell amongst an unholy people? And the answer comes in the book that follows Exodus, in Leviticus. And the answer comes, of course, in the the offerings, the sacrifices they were to make. Uh, These sacrifices, these offerings were God's idea. Uh, The book of Leviticus begins with verse 1. Uh, Look at it again. Uh, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, and he said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them. So see, uh, 
Moses didn't call God and say, hey, I've been doing some thinking, and I wonder if maybe it's best that, and the best way forward is if we bring you sacrifices. Uh, it's not Moses' idea. Uh, the Lord calls Moses. And the book of Leviticus ends in chapter 27, verse 34, with the reminder that uh, these are the commands the Lord gave Moses on Mount Sinai for the Israelites. Do you see what this means? That relationship with God is on his terms. Now, that is always the case. Religion, really, uh, is a human construct. Uh, it's a futile attempt by people to impose their own terms and conditions on God. And it doesn't work. It has to be done God's way. So, uh, these initial chapters of Leviticus give us detailed instructions about five types of offerings that God commanded his people to bring to him. Uh, firstly, there's the burnt offering. Uh, then there's what's called the grain offering. Uh, then there's thirdly, the peace offering. Uh, fourthly, the sin or purification offering. And fifthly, what is the guilt or reparation offering? I want to run through them so that we get an idea of what was involved for Old Testament Israel in these offerings. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time on the first one, the burnt offering, and then we'll go more quickly th through the rest before then tracing their trajectory to Christ and to us. Okay, that's where we're going. So let's look at, firstly, the burnt offering. Uh, and we see the distinctive of the, the burnt offering in chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. Uh, the all of it refers to an animal, and it is the whole animal that has to be burnt up. Uh, when you start to get under the skin of this, uh, we start to realize what's involved. Uh, this burnt offering is a very costly offering, because we see in Leviticus that you couldn't just go out and find some wild animal. It had to be one of your own animals. It had to be from your herd or your flock, although you're allowed to bring a bird if you're particularly poor. Now, you see, in those days, uh, you didn't put your cash in a high-interest bank account. Uh, there weren't such things. Uh, your cash, your livelihood, uh, was in your herds and your flocks. If you like, your savings were walking around on four legs. And so, the burnt offering was particularly costly because you were bringing something of your livelihood to offer to God. And you couldn't just pick out the scrawniest animal from your flock, uh, something that's on its last legs and mangy. Uh, chapter, verses 38 uh, and uh, chapter 1, verse 3 also says that it has to be a male without defect. A male without defect. The best of your flock. Just imagine that. Imagine if you're that first, uh, if you're that Israelite, uh, standing there, watching one of your prize animals go up in smoke. Uh, it would be like taking a wad of $100 bills and throwing them on the fire. It was a costly business. But what was the point of it? Uh, did you notice the point of it? Because it came out particularly in verse 3. Uh, verse 3 continues, it should be a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable 
to the Lord. You see, it was on this basis that a person could be accepted by God. And verse 4 unpacks that a little more. It continues. He is to lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. Uh, What does it mean to make atonement? Uh, It can mean to cleanse, or it can mean to pay a ransom. Of course, we know a ransom is something which is accepted in the place of a person. Uh, If you were to go back to Exodus uh, chapter 21, we read that uh, it gives a particular situation there. If a a person's ox gores another person to death, uh, the owner, we're told, is to be put to death but the owner could escape the death penalty by bringing a ransom and paying a ransom in his place. And I think this is the sense of the burnt offering. Uh, The animal is offered as a ransom payment. Uh, The person deserves the death penalty because of their sin, but God accepts the animal as a payment in their place. And by laying a hand on the head of the animal before it was killed, uh, the worshipper identifies with the animal to be sacrificed. Uh, The gesture expresses, I am offering this animal in my place. And in fact, the the whole process is very much a hands-on affair. Uh, Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. He is to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood. Uh, The question is, who is the he? And the he is the worshipper. So if you were the person bringing the offering, uh, you yourself had to kill the animal. And in fact, the division of labor was the worshipper had to kill the animal, uh, skin it, wash it, and chop it up. And then the priest collected the blood, and sprinkled it and arranged the bits of the animal on the altar. So you see, it was a very messy business. Imagine having to do that yourself. You go to the entrance of the tent of meeting with your prize animal, your favorite bull. You lay your hands on its head as you acknowledge your sin. You cut its throat. You chop it up and then you hand it over to be burnt. What would be going through your mind as you do this? Uh, Probably two things. Firstly, you'd be thinking, my sin must be very serious. It's because of my sin that this animal has to die. This is the punishment for sin. The wages of sin is death. This is what I deserve. My sin is that serious. But something else would also be going through your mind as you went through this ritual. You'd also be thinking, how merciful is God that he's willing to accept this payment in my place? Uh, The burnt offering was the most common of all the sacrifices. Uh, If you like, it acted a bit like a lightning conductor. Uh, It diverts the wrath of God against sin away from the people. Uh, We see, if you read in the Old Testament book of 2 Chronicles, uh, there we see that the people actually neglected the burnt offerings. 
And as a result, God's wrath fell on the people themselves. So it was a very serious business. And we're not actually told how often the people were to bring these burnt offerings, but if you read the book of Job, in chapter 1, verse 5, it tells us there how Job would regularly make burnt offerings for his children in case they had sinned. He would do it regularly. So you see, uh, the priests themselves had a busy life. Uh, They didn't have time just to sit around and read the latest edition of Men's Weekly. Uh, In addition to the burnt offerings brought by the people, uh, they also made a daily burnt offering every morning and every evening, and they also made burnt offerings at the annual festivals. Uh, The burnt offering was always to be kept burning on the altar as a reminder of the need for atonement. Uh, The most famous of the Old Testament burnt offerings, of course, was what we looked at in the kids' talk, Genesis chapter 22. Uh, There God says to Abraham, uh, bring me your son, your only son, and give him back to me as a burnt offering. So the burnt offering was at the heart of this relationship with a holy God. And each of the three paragraphs in Leviticus chapter 1 ends with the phrase that the offering was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Uh, Sometimes when I sit in my study, uh, Tracy has perfected the art now, roasting a chicken, and the the scent and the aroma of the chicken waft into the study and prepare me for what is to come. Now, these offerings were a pleasing aroma to the Lord, and not because he was going to eat them, because it meant the penalty for sin was being paid. Okay, Uh, we spent a fair amount of time on the first offering, the burnt offering, uh, to get this basic understanding. Now I want to go through uh, and look more briefly at the other four remaining offerings. So secondly, we get to chapter 2 of Leviticus, and it talks there of what is called the grain offering. Uh, This is the only one of the five offerings which didn't involve an animal. It consisted of flour, of oil, and of salt, either cooked or uncooked. Uh, What was its purpose? Uh, It's interesting that the same Hebrew word used for grain offering is also used in the Bible to refer to a tribute brought to a conquering king. Uh, A conquered king would pay a conquering king a tribute. Uh, If you go to, say, for example, uh, 1 Kings, we read that in chapter 4, all the kingdoms brought tribute, which is the same word as this grain offering, uh, to King Solomon. And all the kings who had conquered had served him uh, all their days. Uh, They brought this tribute to Solomon as a sign of their allegiance to him. And I think that's the idea behind the grain offering. It was a tribute, a gift, acknowledging that the Lord was the people's king, the supreme king. And it was offered every morning and every evening after the burnt offering. As the people brought their own, it spoke of dedication, a renewal of a dedication to their Lord and king. It also provided the purpose of a food for the priests. Some was offered to the Lord but some was for the priests to eat. So Leviticus 2, verse 10. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. 
So it's what the priests also lived off. So we've seen the burnt offering, uh, the grain offering. Uh, thirdly, the peace offering. Uh, when you get to chapter 3 in Leviticus, it gives details of what is called a peace offering. Uh, this differs from the other offerings in that most of it was kept by the worshipper to eat. Uh, they ate it as a festive meal. Uh, some of the peace offering was given to the priest, uh, some was offered to God in the fire, and some was retained for the worshipper to eat. Uh, I think it's what's referred to, if you go to the book of uh, Deuteronomy, chapter 12, verse 7, it uh, says this, uh, There in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. So, uh, we see this offering made. Uh, in Leviticus 7, it's sort of teased out a bit. Uh, it could be made to express thanks to God. It could be offered at the, t the point at which you make a vow or as a free will offering. Okay, fourthly, uh, we come to what is called the purification offerings. Uh, the particular focus of the sin offering uh, was to cleanse, was to purify. Uh, and that is how it is often referred to. Uh, Leviticus 5 verse 5 introduces this idea of the worshipper uh, realizing his guilt and confessing his sin to be cleansed. Uh, fifthly and lastly, there was what was called then the guilt or reparation offering. Uh, this is particularly concerned with uh, compensation, reparation. Uh, Leviticus 6 verse 6 says this, and as a penalty, uh, he must bring to the priest, that is to the Lord, his guilt offering, a ram from the flock, one without defect, and of the proper value. And in this way, the priest will make atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven. Uh, there's this whole sense of um, being indebted, uh, firstly to God. Uh, because of your sin, you've run up a debt with God. You owe him. And in some way, the sacrifice clears the debt. Uh, it is compensation to God. Uh, when we get to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, uh, we go to chapter 53, and we see this whole idea of a reparation offering is central when it speaks to this character called the servant of the Lord, who will one day make an offering for sin. We know, of course, that servant of the Lord is now Jesus. But not only did uh, the reparation offering make compensation to God, but where your sin had affected and disadvantaged somebody else, uh, it also made reparation to that person who you've sinned against. So in uh, Leviticus 6 verse 5, you were to restore to that person what you owed them plus a fifth. It's interesting when you get to the New, New Testament and Jesus meets Zacchaeus, the corrupt tax collector, when he puts his faith in Jesus, what does he do? He says not only will he give back uh, what he has cheated people out of, but he will give back four times more so. He will make reparation to them. So, there we have it. Uh, we've worked hard in this uh, first seven chapters of Leviticus. And we've teased out and we've seen in some detail uh, what this aspect of Israel's worship involved. Uh, when Israel eventually stops their desert wanderings and they settle in the promised land, 
Uh, this system of sacrifices continues. The only difference is they don't now offer it in the tent of meeting. They offer it in the temple, a fixed building. But the point is still the same. The only way for a holy God to remain in relationship with a sinful people is through this bloody business of sacrifice, repeated day in, day out, day in, day out, day in, day out. So, here's the question. Why has God now changed the rules? Uh, why are we not pitching up at the school hall every, every Sunday uh, with a lamb or a bull in tow? Well, uh, let's go, as we did last week, and look in a bit more detail at Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 says this. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Look at Hebrews 10 verse 3. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So you see these repeated offerings in the Old Testament era, they're just shadows cast by a reality that was to come. And what was that reality? Hebrews 10 verse 11. Day after day, Every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Who is this priest? This priest is Jesus. Hebrews 10 verse 14 by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. All these Old Testament sacrifices, they're showing the tension. How can an unholy people live with a holy God? And they point to the ultimate means by which unholy people can be reconciled to a holy God. And it's through this priest this supreme high priest, the one to which all those sacrifices pointed, the Lord Jesus himself. Christ has offered himself as a single perfect sacrifice for sins. And it's so powerful. Its effectiveness is evident in the fact that it doesn't need to be repeated. It was once and for all time. And there's only one sacrifice that is necessary himself. If he, in a sense, it replaces all five of these Old Testament sacrifices. Uh, maybe you, you have availed yourself of that uh, dishwasher tablet that claims to be able to do the functions of five different uh, detergents in one. Uh, what a claim. In a similar sense, uh, Christ's death on the cross, it fulfills the five different functions of these old, five Old Testament sacrifices, all in one. So you see, Jesus, he is the burnt offering consumed on the altar of the cross. 
Uh, Jesus is the peace offering on whom we feed by faith when we take the Lord's Supper. Uh, Jesus is the purification offering through whom we are made clean. Uh, Jesus is the reparation offering. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, through whom our spiritual debt, our reparation to God is paid. And the aroma of Christ's sacrifice on the cross is a pleasing aroma to God. Look at Ephesians 2. It's amazing how the New Testament picks up on these things and weaves them together. Ephesians 5 verse 2. Christ loved us and he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The blood that makes atonement is his blood. Romans 5 verse 8. Christ died for us since we have now been justified by his blood. I don't know if you're a rugby fan, but if you watch the World Cup, um, if a team performs a really good try, they'll show it on TV, uh, and they'll usually replay it from umpteen different angles, especially if it's an England try, because it's so unusual. Uh, And the same try is seen each time, just so you can appreciate it uh, in all its glory and its beauty. In a similar way, uh, these five different Old Testament sacrifices are like five different camera angles on the one sacrifice of Christ so that we can appreciate it in all its beauty and its grace. It is a single, powerful, effective sacrifice. But for it to be effective for us, what do we need to do? For it to be effective for us, we need to identify ourselves with it. Go back in time again to the Old Testament worshipper. What did he need to do with the animal he brought to the tent of meeting? Well, in Leviticus 1 verse 4, he has to lay his hands on the head of the animal and then he has to confess his sins that he has committed. Bringing that back to us today, have you laid your hands on Christ? And have you confessed your sins to God? Uh, Maybe if you've never done that, maybe now is the time to do it. To say, Lord God, I deserve the death penalty, but please accept the death of Jesus in my place. And for those of us who have done that, it's something we need to keep on doing every day. Uh, We're not saying, of course, that Christ is sacrificed again and again. And we're not saying that we become Christians again and again every day by doing this. What we're saying is, once we put our trust in Christ, we are in relationship with a holy God. But in that relationship with God through Christ, we need to continually draw near to Him by faith again and again each day. And confession has therefore an important place in the Christian life. So let me ask you a question this morning. If you're trusting in Jesus, how is your confessional life? Are you regularly confessing your sins? Are you regularly, in effect, laying your hands on the head of Christ and identifying with his death 
and saying, this was for me in my place. Because you see, as we do this as people trusting in Christ, God assures us ongoingly that we are accepted through Christ. And nothing more needs to be done. Uh, Christ's sacrifice is totally effective. All our sins have been dealt with. All have been paid for, forgiven, atonement made. As we sing in that wonderful song, The Power of the Cross, this the power of the cross. We stand forgiven at the cross. So when did you last draw near to God like that? Uh, reflecting on your life of the last week, the last month, uh, confessing your actual sins, your failings before him in the quietness of your own heart, and laying your hands again on Christ's head. I would put to you that maybe today uh, we sit a little loose to this whole role of confession in our lives, and yet it is something which brings real richness and real depth to our daily walk with God. And if we don't do it, then there's a sense in which God grows distant. Uh, notice, secondly, uh, we're not just the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice, but also the cost of it. Uh, 1 Peter 1 verse 19 says this, that we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Remember the the offering, the burnt offering, had to be a male without blemish or defect. It was incredibly costly. But God has provided a once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. But he doesn't, of course, just take the best of his flock. He takes his one and only son. And that's what came out in the kids' talk, hopefully powerfully to their young hearts. God has made the supreme sacrifice to assure us of his love for us. And Romans 8 verse 32, as we saw, picks up on this. Uh, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. Uh, those familiar words of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Do you ever doubt God's love for you? Remember what sacrifice he has made for you. That most costly of sacrifices, his one and only son. What does Christ's sacrifice mean for us? It tells us various things. It tells us our sin is very serious. For me to be accepted by God, it took nothing less than the death of his son. Therefore, maybe I shouldn't take sin lightly in my own life. It tells us something else. It tells us that God loves us very much, that he's willing to do that for me. So I should never doubt his love, even when things are not going in life as I would hope, even in dark times in life, in times of suffering. It also tells us, as we share the Lord's Supper, that it is a great thing, because the Lord's Supper reminds us of the price paid for us. It's a bit like a meal shared after the peace offering. At the Lord's Supper is a time to rejoice together in God's goodness to us. And also the death of Christ reminds us that there is only one way to be right with God. 
if God is going to go to such extraordinary lengths and at such great cost to himself, there is no other way that sin can be dealt with. Do you see what flows out of that? We must never drift away from trusting in Christ's death for us. There is only one perfect sacrifice for sins. And every other way is like offering diseased, crippled animals to God. It's an insult to him, and he won't accept them. So we've seen uh, the Old Testament sacrifice of Israel. We've seen the sacrifice of Christ. Finally, and very briefly, let's finish tracing that trajectory and see then what flows out of that for us today. Uh, the sacrifices of the Christian. Although there is only the sacrifice of Jesus that makes us acceptable to God, it's striking that the New Testament writers don't leave this language of sacrifice there. Uh, the New Testament writers then go on to draw on this language of sacrifice to describe the response of the believer, those who put their faith in Christ, to God's mercy. Uh, the New Testament writers use this language of sacrifice to talk about the life of discipleship. And it's teased out, particularly we're going to see, in three ways. Uh, firstly, in the living out of our faith in practical acts of goodness, of love. Uh, look at Hebrews 13, verse 15. It says this, uh, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So you see, uh, we praise God, we do good, we share what we have with others. Uh, these are sacrifices that please God for the Christian. So practical doing. Uh, secondly, uh, generous giving. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 18. Uh, Paul describes the gifts the Philippian Christians are giving in sending their support to him. And it says this. He describes them in this way. Philippians 4, verse 18. Uh, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Uh, have you ever thought of your financial giving as being a sacrifice that pleases God. The idea of giving as a sacrifice to God also came up in the grain offering. Uh, remember, most of those offerings, uh, they were to feed the priests, and Paul picks up on this principle in 1 Corinthians 9. Look at verse 13. Uh, Paul, looking back to the Old Testament system, says, Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So in all this, uh, with our doing good and giving generously, uh, we do well to remember the challenge of the peace offering because we saw then the fat was the best bit that was given to God. Uh, in the days of the prophet Malachi, uh, God's people insulted him by bringing animals that were blind and that were lame and that were sick. And so the question that it poses to the New Testament believer is this. 
Uh, are we giving God the best or the leftovers? Are, are we honoring God by giving Him the best of our flocks? So the final way in which this uh, language of sacrifice is used for the New Testament believer is in wholehearted living. Uh, the most striking development of this sacrifice language is, comes out in Romans 12, verse 1. Uh, look at it together. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You see, the ultimate sacrifice God demands is not just our good works. It's not just our financial giving, but the giving of our whole lives dedicated to Him. As the animals for the burnt offerings were totally consumed in the flames, so we are to lay our whole lives before God each day. Uh, God is not just to get the best of us, but He is to get the, all of us every day, every part, everything we have dedicated to His service. Nothing to be held back. So, uh, how are your sacrifices looking at the moment? Uh, in one sense, we come to God with nothing in our hands, just resting our hands on the head of Christ in faith. Uh, that is the only means of which we can be made right with God. But having done that, and for those who are then accepted through Christ, we come to God with everything, with our hands full with good deeds, with money, with time, with everything we have and everything that we are. And as with the grain offering, this is our tributes to the King, the one who rules over us and whose servants we have become by grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the way that you have worked out this incredible story, uh, this plan of salvation, of redemption. Uh, charted and foreseen through the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ. Uh, whispers of it are there, shadows of it are there in the Old Testament, in all the, the sacrifices and the, the offerings that you uh, prescribe to be made. And they point to the wonderful fulfillments in Christ, the perfect sacrifice. And from that we see how our lives as people who trust in Christ should then flow out in daily offerings to you. Please, we pray, uh, help us to have a deeper joy and a deeper understanding of all you've done for us in the sending of your most precious Son. And may that encourage a faith in him, and life's lived out then in joyful service to our King. Amen.